Are you on Instagram? No. Are you on Facebook? No. Are you on Twitter? No. Are you on any social media platform? Uh. That's Yaron Blanc, a blue-eyed and boyish 10th grader from Jerusalem. He came to our brand new and amazing recording studio, Nomi Studios, in order to talk to our brand new and amazing producer, Mitch Ginsberg. Hey Mitch. Hi Mitchy. How are you doing? Great. So Mitch, why did you want to talk to Yaron? Yaron, well, because even though he's about 35 years younger than I am, he is a bit of a role model for me. A role model? In some ways, yeah. In what ways? Mm, his phonelessness. I envy him for his phonelessness. <laughs> Tell me more. Um, I tried it for a short amount of time. I think I was less successful than he has been, but um, there was a point in my life where I was desperate to be rid of my phone. Uh, can, can you explain? I can. For several years, I was a military correspondent for the Times of Israel. And that meant many, many, many updates coming in through my phone. Um, middle of the night updates, terrible news updates, war breaking out updates. And I became very much addicted to the phone and to those updates so that I would have like feel phantom vibrations and ringing and all sorts of things like that. And there was something about the, the nature of the updates, not just the constancy of the updates, but the actual nature of them. That was dreadful to me. In other words, it was frequently bad news that came in and yet addictive as well. And so the phone in many ways for me symbolized that like on the one hand burst of adrenaline and on the other hand sort of almost fear of what was coming or what might be waiting for me. And you wanted out? I wanted out so badly. So you decided to leave that job? Yeah. Because of the phone? To a large extent, I think, yeah. The phone is crucial part of the job. Um, you have to know what's happening. There's a great emphasis on knowing what's happening first, especially if it's breaking news, um, especially with this sort of like army-based news people want to know immediately. So I can remember one afternoon where for the first time a Syrian fighter jet crossed into Israeli airspace. If you find out about that 10 minutes after everybody else, you're not doing your job. And for me, it was terrible. And I stopped. I, my last day on the job was the day that I also went to the phone company to give back that smartphone. And how long did you last? I lasted, I think, about two years. Something like that. How was it? Well, I enjoyed being on the high horse a little bit and telling people how free I was, not having a phone, not being distracted, not looking at it all the time. But um, I don't know if people around me enjoyed it that much. I uh, got lost all the time. I had to borrow my wife's phone for her navigational device for ways whenever I went anywhere. And people don't like being asked directions these days because they just tell you to use your phone. <laughs> so yeah, there was a price to be paid. And Mitch, you have four kids. Right. And during this phoneless period, did they have phones? No, not yet. None of them did. And I would often preach to them the wonders of not having a phone. And they were not a very receptive audience to this preaching. 
When my eldest daughter, Shaked, was in sixth grade, she basically spoke about nothing but phones. All of her friends had phones. I mean, everyone. Everyone in the class had a phone. And my wife and I, Tali, were holding out, but it was not an easy line to hold. I remember going to a parent-teacher conference that was meant to discuss phone usage among elementary school kids. And they were talking all about how to use WhatsApp and the proper way to use it for like a good online discourse and how to use it at recess. And I was so frustrated that I just said, I would personally prefer if the principal were to like go around the schoolyard and hand out lit cigarettes to the kids rather than have them use the phone during recess because at least that way they would like talk and interact with one another rather than huddle in the corner with their phone. (laughs) How did that go over? Not well. (laughs) It was like silence. And then a few years ago, and at least Partially in a futile attempt to further delay the inevitable, you did something pretty unusual. Right. We packed up the whole family, and we traveled through Italy by bike. Um, Three months biking and camping, with the idea being no phones, no screen time, sort of like a modern little house on the prairie is what we had in mind. We'd all be together, ma, pa, the girls would go fetch water, everyone would get along great. Long, uninterrupted hours spent without phones. It didn't exactly work out that way. Here's Shaked, my daughter. I was like, no. I knew this was a bad idea from the beginning, and I was so right. So your phoneless odyssey backfired? Big time. (laughs) Entirely. I mean, all of those nights that we spent in these churches, these quaint countryside churches, they only made her crave a phone even more. And as soon as we got back home to Jerusalem, she made it clear that the game was up. Then we came back. I was like, oh, they're getting me a phone. Like, this is not going to be a question anymore. I'm getting a phone. I went through misery. I went through hell. I will be getting a phone. And then they got me the crappiest phone on the planet. (laughs) At least I had one. And then what happened? Well, we got her a phone, and as you can probably imagine, everything changed. Like what? Like it became her best friend, and she was constantly on it. I had no idea what she was doing with it, and she would emerge from her room after hours sometimes of using it. And it seemed to me at least that she was less happy than she had been before. And um, then the whole thing played itself out again with our second daughter, Gilly, and our third now, Matan is constantly asking when he's next in line. And I'm desperately really looking for a way out. For some sort of creative way to curb my kids' enthusiasm for this hellish device that they carry around in their pocket. So when I heard about Yaron... Are you on Instagram? No. Are you on Facebook? No. Are you on Twitter? No. I thought he could teach me a thing or two. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. 
Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if... What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Hey listeners, it's Mishi. This week, we released our 50th wartime diary. Next week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Meital and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating wartime diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, so if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, israelstory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. And we're back. All right, take it away. Yaron Blanc is a year older than my daughter Shaked. They went to the same elementary school, and I know his parents. He's 15 now, and not only does he not want a phone, he, get this, refuses to carry one. Uh, so, well, like, in the elementary school, there was a considerable amount of people that didn't have phone, or they had, like, a stupid phone or something like that. But then by seventh grade, it's like I was the only one without a phone. Unlike us, Yaron's parents didn't even have to try that hard, let alone orchestrate a whole cycling trip through Italy. There was a discussion with the teachers about the use of cell phones in, in school, and my husband and I were not in favor of encouraging kids to use their phones. Rabbi Stacy Blanc, Yaron's mother. But it turned out pretty quickly that in seventh grade, the teachers were very much in tune with the kids because all of the kids in the class had a cell phone except for Yaron. As Yaron's first year of junior high progressed, the pressure to get a phone started mounting. There were classroom assignments he wasn't getting, updates he kept missing, in-class competitions he couldn't take part in, and, of course, a total shutout from any kind of a social life. But Yaron didn't cave. In fact, quite the opposite. Rather than conform, he bunkered down. He became the 
no phone guy. That was his identity. His parents were thrilled. At the time, I was hearing stories from uh, a friend whose son was in the same class, that he there was a WhatsApp group of the, of the kids, and that it had no less than 200 messages a day. And some of the messages were, were hurtful to him, and, and it seemed like a really unhealthy environment. So I was actually proud of Yaron that he could withstand peer pressure. Then came COVID. And very quickly, we began to see that the teachers found the easiest way to stay in touch with the kids and get information across was through WhatsApp. And in order to have WhatsApp, you needed to have a phone. And here began a bit of a struggle that for Yaron had become a matter of principle. We've all been there. Moments in which we have to balance principles and practicality. And Yaron's genius solution? Outsource. The teachers were putting me in the WhatsApp groups, and I found myself very quickly becoming your own secretary, which obviously was not appropriate. <laughs> so Stacy and her husband, Tamir, had their own moment of reckoning, a moment in which they had to choose between their educational ideals and, well, her life as a secretary. And their genius solution? Pass the buck right back to where it came from. They sat Yaron down for a serious talk. They discussed the importance of taking a stand and the necessity, at times, of conforming. It was not an easy <laughs> uh, discussion. Yeah, it, it took a little convincing. There were a few threats there. <laughs> what were the threats? You won't get to play chess. Yeah, this is this is the young man we're talking. <laughs> for Yaron, who recently won his school chess tournament. Not being able to practice the Spanish opening and the French defense was one step too far. Even his idealism had a limit. And that limit was the Queen's Gambit. And so, Yaron reluctantly entered a new phase of life. The phone phase. So, like, I use WhatsApp twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. And except for that, they don't use the phone. In some sort of modern-day Talmudic splitting of hairs, Yaron is still able to claim that he doesn't actually have a mobile phone. And given the fact that the phone, an LG K42, in case you were wondering, lives in his bedroom drawer, I guess he's right. My slightly phone-obsessed daughter Shaked's average daily screen time is around four hours. So I asked him what he does with all that extra time on his hands. Other than chess, that is. So, I don't know, I read, I sit outside, like, or I meditate or something. Thinking about some of my own parenting choices, I went home and told Shaked all about Yaron. I think it's absolutely insane. Like, how do you do stuff? How do you, how do you talk with friends? How do you stay updated? Like, you need it to be able to be a social human being, I think, in this generation. We're not a hundred years ago. You don't go out and, like, play in the mud. Like, it's not what you do. Nobody does that. Like, a board game? No, it's just not what people do these days in Maasot. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by the Jerusalem Foundation and the Times of Israel. Our episode today, Hello Operator. 
Stories of First Phones Now, semi-phoneless Yaron is obviously an outlier. Much like Mitch's kids, my little niece Shaizina, who's just eight and a half, is counting the days till her bat mitzvah, which is when her parents told her they'd get her a phone. Almost all other phoneless kids I, and probably you, know, are similarly obsessed with getting a phone. To them, a phone represents freedom, opportunity, independence. To me, in my nearly six hours of daily screen time, it represents imprisonment, servitude, and, well, basically death. But hey, what do I know? On our show today, we have two stories of first phones, but of a very different kind than Yaron's seldomly used Android. Okay, Act 1, it's good to hear from you. My all-time favorite book is Amos Oz's memoir, A Tale of Love and Darkness. If you don't know it, or haven't read it, I really can't recommend it enough. It's a story of growing up in Jerusalem in the 40s and 50s, in what feels, and what was, a completely different world. Now, as a huge and lifelong Amosos fan, I read it as soon as it came out, in 2002. I was in the army then, and I can honestly say that its 593 pages shaped me into the person I am today. I've probably read it cover to cover six or seven times since then, and I have given it as a present to dozens and dozens of people. There are many amazing moments in the book, which I think about often. But perhaps its most memorable scene, at least for me, is about a phone call. And about magical lines connecting the Kerem Avraham neighborhood pharmacy, in those days it was called a chemist, and the rest of the world. Amosos died in 2018, so we asked his son-in-law, Professor Eli Salzberger, to come in and record that scene. Here's Eli. Growing up, there was always a special magic hidden in the name Tel Aviv. As soon as I heard the word, I would conjure up in my mind's eye a picture of a tough guy in a dark blue singlet, bronzed and broad-shouldered, Poet, worker, revolutionary. A guy made without fear. With a cap worn at a careless yet provocative angle on his curly hair, smoking matisuans. Someone who was at home in the world. All day long he worked hard on the land with sand and mortar. In the evening he played the violin. At night he danced with girls or sang them soulful songs by the light of the full moon. And in the early hours, he took a handgun or a stand out of its hiding place and stole away into the darkness to guard the houses and fields. How far away Tel Aviv was. In my entire childhood years, I only visited it five or six times at most. Occasionally, we used to spend the Chagim, the festivals, with the aunts, my mother's sisters. It's not just that the light in Tel Aviv was different from the light in Jerusalem. Even the laws of gravity were completely different. 
people walk differently in Tel Aviv. They leapt and floated like Neil Armstrong on the moon. In Jerusalem, people always walked like mourners at a funeral or latecomers to a concert. First, they put down the tip of their shoe and tested the ground. Then, once they had lowered their foot, they were in no hurry to move it. We had waited for 2,000 years to gain a foothold in Jerusalem, and we were now unwilling to give it up. If we picked up our foot, someone else might come along and snatch our little strip of land. On the other hand, once you had lifted your foot, you wouldn't be in such a hurry to put it down again. Who can tell what menacing nest of vipers you might step on? For thousands of years, we had paid with our blood for our impetuousness. Time and time again, we had fallen into the hands of our enemies because we put our feet down without looking where we were putting them. That, more or less, was the way people walked in Jerusalem. But Tel Aviv? Wow. The whole city was one big grasshopper. The people leapt by. So did the houses, the streets, the squares, the sea breeze, the sand, the avenues, and even the clouds in the sky. People in Jerusalem talked about Tel Aviv with envy and pride, with admiration, but almost confidentially, as though the city were some kind of secret project of the Jewish people that it was best not to talk about too much. After all, walls have ears and spies and enemy agents could be lurking around every corner. Tel Aviv. Sea, light, sand, scaffolding, kiosks on the avenues, a brand new white Hebrew city with simple lines growing up among the citrus groves and the dunes. Not just a place that you buy a ticket for and travel to on an egg bus, but a different continent altogether. For years, we had a regular arrangement for a telephonic dare with our family in Tel Aviv. We used to phone them every three or four months, even though we didn't have a phone, and neither did they. First of all, we used to write to Auntie Chaya and Uncle Tzvi to let them know that on, say, the 19th of the month, which was a Wednesday, we'd call. See, on Wednesdays, Tzvi left his work at the health clinic at three. So at five, we would phone from our chemist to their chemist. The letter was sent well in advance, and then we waited for a reply. In their letter, Auntie Chaya and Uncle Tzvi assured us that Wednesday the 19th suited them perfectly, and they would be waiting at the chemist a little before five. And not to worry, if we didn't manage to phone on the dot of five, they wouldn't run away. I don't remember whether we put on our best clothes for the expedition to the chemists for the phone call to Tel Aviv, but it wouldn't surprise me if we did. It was a solemn undertaking. As early as the Sunday before, my father would say to my mother, Fania, you haven't forgotten that this is the week that we're phoning Tel Aviv, right? On Monday, my mother would say, Arye, don't be late home the day after tomorrow. Don't mess things up. And on Tuesday, they would both say to me, Amos, just don't surprise us. You hear? Just don't be ill. You hear? Don't catch cold or fall over. 
at least not until after tomorrow afternoon. And that evening, they would say to me, go to sleep early, so you'll be in good shape for the phone call. We don't want you to sound as though you haven't been eating properly. So they would build up the excitement. We lived on Amos Street, and the chemist's shop was five minutes walk away on Sefania Street. But still, by three o'clock, my father would say to my mother, Don't start anything new now, so you won't be in a rush. I'm perfectly okay, she would answer. But what about you, with your books? You might forget all about it. Me? He'd reply. Forget? I'm looking at the clock every few minutes. And besides, Amos will remind me. So there I was, just five or six years old, and already I had to assume a historic responsibility. I didn't have a watch, and so every few moments I ran to the kitchen to see what the clock said. And then I would announce, like the countdown to a spaceship launch, 25 minutes to go, 20 minutes to go, 15 to go, 10 and a half to go. And at that point we would get up, lock the front door carefully, and set off, the three of us, turn left, as far as Mr. Oster's grocery shop. Then right onto Zecharia Street, left onto Malachi Street, right onto Tzfania Street, straight into the chemists, where we'd announce, Good afternoon to you, Mr. Heinemann. How are you? We've come to phone. He knew perfectly well, of course, that on Wednesday we would be coming to phone our relatives in Tel Aviv. And he knew that Zvi worked at the health clinic and that Chaya had an important job in the League of Working Women and that they were good friends of Golda Meyerson, who'd later become Golda Meir, and of Misha Kolodny, who was known as Moshe Kol over here. But still, we'd remind him, we've come to phone our relatives in Tel Aviv. And Mr. Heinemann would say, Yes, of course, please take a seat. Then he would crack his usual telephone joke. Once, he'd say, with excitement, as if it was the first time he'd ever told it. At the Zionist Congress in Zurich, terrible rowing sounds were suddenly heard from a side room. Bear Locker asked Hartsfeld what was going on. And Hartsfeld explained that it was Comrade Rubashov speaking to Ben-Gurion in Jerusalem. Speaking to Jerusalem? exclaimed Berl Locker. So why doesn't he just use the telephone? My father would say, I'll dial now. And my mother would answer, It's too soon, Arya. There's still a few minutes to go. He would reply, Yes, but they have to connect us, because there was no direct dialing at the time. My mother, unconvinced by the reasoning, would retort, Yes, but what if for once we are put through right away and they're not there yet? So my father would reply, Well, in that case, we shall simply try again later. And my mother, who had to have the last word, would decide, No, they'll worry. They'll think they've missed us. While they were still arguing, it was almost five o'clock. Father picked up the receiver and said to the operator, Good afternoon, madam. Would you please give me Tel Aviv 648? Sometimes the operator would answer, 
Would you please wait a few minutes, sir? The postmaster is on the line. Or Mr. Seton. Oh, or Mr. Nashashibi. And we felt quite nervous. Whatever would they think of us? In my mind, I could visualize a single line that connected Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and via Tel Aviv to the rest of the world. And if this one line was engaged, we were cut off from the world. The line made its way over wastelands and rocks, over hills and valleys, and I thought it was a great miracle. What if wild animals came in the night and bit through the line, I worried. Or if wicked Arabs cut it, or if the rain got into it, or there was a fire. There was this line winding along, so vulnerable, unguarded, baking in the sun. I felt full of gratitude to the men who had put up this line. So brave-hearted, so dexterous. After all, it's not so easy to put up a line from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. I knew from experience. Once, we ran a wire from my room to Eliyahu Friedman's room. Only two houses and a garden away. And what a business it was. With the trees in the way, the neighbors, the shed, the wall, the steps, the bushes. After waiting a while, my father decided that the postmaster of Mr. Nashashibi must have finished talking by now. And so he picked up the receiver and once again said to the operator, Excuse me, madam, I believe I asked to be put through to Tel Aviv 648. She would say, I've got it written down, sir. Please wait patiently. Father would say, I'm waiting, madam. Naturally, I'm waiting. But there are people waiting at the other end, too. This was his way of hinting to her politely that although we were indeed cultured people, there was a limit to our endurance. We were decent people, but we most definitely weren't suckers. We were not to be led like sheep to the slaughter. That idea that you could treat Jews any way you felt like was over, once and for all. Then, all of a sudden the phone would ring, and it was always such an exciting sound. Such a magical moment. The conversation went something like this. Hello, Tzvi. Speaking. It's Arya here in Jerusalem. Yes, Arya. Hello, it's Tzvi here. How are you? Everything's fine here. We're speaking from the chemists. So are we. What's new? Nothing new here. How about at your end, Tzvi? Tell us, how is it going? Everything is okay. Nothing special to report. We're all well. No news is good news. There's no news here either. We're all fine. How about you? We're fine too. That's good. Now Fania wants to speak to you. And then, the same thing all over again. How are you? What's new? And then, now Amos wants to say a few words. And that was the whole conversation. What's new? Good. Well, so let's speak again soon. It's good to hear from you. It's good to hear from you too. We'll write and set a time for the next call. We'll talk. Yes, definitely. Soon. See you soon. Look after yourself. All the best. You too. Bye. Eli Salzberger. When he's not acting out his late father-in-law's childhood memories, Eli is a law professor at the University of Haifa, where he served for many years as the dean of the faculty. We'll be right back. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Our next story takes us from Amos Oz's pharmacy in the Kerem of Raham neighborhood of Jerusalem to Nesziona a town of roughly 50,000 residents nestled between Rishon LeZion and Rehovot. But Theo Cantor's story takes place in a very different Nestziona. Act 2, press 1, for anyone. Here's Theo. The SPAC test is basically a two-hour-long test that is really hard, and I absolutely hate it. For me, it was um, social studies. Like, there are oh, a bunch of people. Ugly. I hate when girls do that because so then we're going to be like, oh, you're not ugly. So like my, my brother and my sister, they all went through the same school as me. And I had some teachers. And they're like, oh, people get in trouble for kissing in the halls. I'm like, jeez. I would have like, whoa. Me and the teacher. You finna get attention. In the spring of fourth grade, Zeke Bronfman became the first kid in my class to get an iPhone. We are calling it iPhone. We all watched in awe as he played Angry Birds talked to Siri, and took flashy selfies. Feats that today, of course, seem pretty trivial. I didn't get an iPhone until my bar mitzvah, and I felt majorly late to the game. For three long years, I was jealous of the cool kids, flaunting their touchscreens and social media profiles while I was still making do with a stupid old flip phone. But this story isn't about me. It's about Tova, who, in a completely different time and place, was one of those cool kids. When other people later got phones and they were proud and talking about it, for me, it was something very casual because it was something I got it from childhood. I was a baby when I saw it. Tova Zahavi is, in a complicated way, both a scion of Nest Siona aristocracy and a descendant of its most ridiculed outcast. I am the first granddaughter of Natan David Zavi, who had the first phone in the Siona in 1933. 1933. That's 1933. He had the first phone before the police. That's right. Before the Nestiona police had a phone line, Tova's Saba Natan had one. We had a special number. Two, zero, one. Of course, someone had to be the first to get a phone, but Natan was an unlikely candidate. He wasn't the mayor, the village doctor, or even, I don't know, the local Mohel. Instead, Tova told me, he was Nestiona's quintessential outsider. Look. Nestiona was founded by 10 families who came from Russia and Poland in 1883. They were what we call the Mayflower. But Natan, he most definitely was not one of the Mayflower folks. In fact, he arrived almost 40 years later. He was born in Kielce, Poland in 1900, and came to British Mandate Palestine at the age of 22. Here, he changed his name from the Polish Zloto, 
meaning gold, to the Hebrew version, Zahavi. He came alone first to Gedera and went to work barefooted to Yafo every day. Natan jumped at whatever job was available, which back then was mainly paving roads and draining swamps. It was hard work, and soon he contracted malaria. The doctors recommended he go to a sanitarium in Switzerland to heal. Reluctantly, he started saving up and making arrangements to leave his new homeland. Right before he left, though, some friends invited him to a party of the Levinsky Seminar at Kolnoa Eden, Tel Aviv's first cinema hall in Nevetzedek. And it was there, at that party, that he first saw Yael, a local sabre girl, playing the accordion on the other end of the room. Nathan had always loved music, from the day he was born, really. And he was enchanted by Yael and her magical melodies. That's an excerpt from a book called It Was Like a Dream, written by Tova's aunt, Natan's daughter, Geula, who passed away in 2021 at the age of 92. They began talking, and he told her he was leaving for Europe to recuperate. The very next day, Yael came by his apartment to sew up his jacket for the upcoming trip. One of Natan's roommates started playing his mandolin, and they all joined in, singing and dancing. By the end of that evening, Natan already knew he wouldn't be going to Switzerland. He decided then and there to overcome his malaria with the help of his new love, Yael. So he stayed, and eventually got better. Before long, they got married and moved to Nestiona, Yael's hometown. Theirs was sort of a Romeo and Juliet, or West Side story tale. They were, after all, from opposite sides of the tracks. It was a great love, although her family didn't want him. See, Yael, she was a daughter of the Mayflower. Her parents, Shmuel and Sarah Rothman, were local bluebloods and expected their daughter to marry someone appropriate. Lovely and industrious as he was, Natan simply didn't fit the bill. He wasn't one of them. They wanted a new Jew, the land worker. And he was an immigrant. He was the typical old Jew from the diaspora. His intonation wasn't the same Hebrew they talk. They patronized him, they mocked him. From the very early days, Nestiona's old guard, people like Yael's family, worked the land. They cultivated orange groves, bred chickens, and, generally speaking, looked down on folks who made their living in trade and commerce. Natan, however, had neither the experience nor the desire to enter the citrus fields. So, channeling his entrepreneurial spirit, he invested in something the town didn't yet have, a hardware store. He sold wiring, paint, tools, things like that. It was perhaps less glorious and pioneering than working the land, but nevertheless, in a town still under construction, it was a necessity. And indeed, things went well. He even used his commercial ties to bring us boxes of fresh fruit from Lebanon. Juicy pears, crisp apples, and other fruits that you never saw here in those days. A good friend of mine once told me that she had asked her mother why we, the Zahavis, always had fruit on the table. And her mother told her, it's simple. 
Zahavi is rich. That's basically true. The store thrived, and Nathan was making a good living. But in 1933, he went one step further than procuring exotic fruit. He went where no Nestiona man had ever gone before. He managed to get his hands on the biggest attraction yet. I remember the phone, the black phone with numbers. I still hear the ringing. The very first telephone in Nestiona was in Natan's store. At the time, the nearest hospital, the nearest fire department, even the nearest police station were all still located in neighboring towns. Rechovot, Rishon Lezion, Ramle, Tel Aviv. In those days, to go from Nestiona to Rishon Lezion, it's like going from Manhattan to Los Angeles. So this phone was, in a very real way, the town's only gateway to the outside world. Somebody is asking me to hang off the, the phone because he has to speak to Tel Aviv. My father was always uh, shouting to leave the phone. It's a lot of money. Though she was born more than 15 years later, Tova still recalls the magic of that phone, which, even when she was a little girl in the 1950s, remained a novelty. It was a uh, quite a... Uh, Attraction to every phone, not only in Estiona. Tova would play with the phone, pick up the receiver and wait, giddy with excitement, just to hear someone's live voice on the other end of the line. Hello. You had to dial one to get outside line, and you could speak uh, to the world. The phone turned Zahavi's hardware store into the place to be. British soldiers would pop in to call home. Well, hello, Mama. Julia. Musicians would show up to serenade those waiting in line for their turn. Even the Jewish pre-state paramilitary groups understood the phone's strategic importance and set up a secret weapons depot in the shop. Downstairs, there was a slick of the agana, and I remember those little children, they say, you are not allowed to get there. Increasingly, people, not only from Nestiona, but from the entire region, came just to socialize to witness this magical device. And true to himself, Natan cashed in on all the excitement. He somehow always got his hands on the newest inventions. It wasn't just the first phone. We also had the first gramophone in town. And Dad would play his record so loud that the whole neighborhood could hear. They had the best counters and records that were played in big noise and all the Siona used to hear it. All these gadgets, all these innovative toys were really just a way for him to show the old timers and above all his wife's parents that he was just as good as them. In a way, there were things of show off, yes, but uh, it was part of him. Unsurprisingly, this rubbed some folks the wrong way. The Mayflower clique, even his own in-laws, didn't like the fact that Natan, of all people, was now the center of attention. The same Natan who had arrived decades after them, who didn't play by their rules, and who had made a fortune on his own. Many Nestsionites were increasingly bitter and jealous. Silently, in their rooms, 
They were talking about how dare the outsider, Zavi, to have phone. There were awkward silences, angry glances, unpleasant encounters, and... One morning, when he came to opening the shop locks, he was terrified to find out that the, the locks were full of human feces. The Blue Bloods had literally taken a dump on Natan's door. And he took time to understand that it was a, an act of jealousy or envy by the so-called Mayflower citizens of Nestiona. Natan realized that he may have overplayed his hand. He had flown too close to the sun. The antagonism generated by his success was ultimately his downfall. His neighbors hated him and made his life pretty miserable. They hoped he'd just give up and leave. But Natan wasn't going anywhere. So if they couldn't drive him out of town, the old guard figured, they'd simply copy him. Private phones became the new rage. The police had the second phone and then all the Mayflowers of Nestiona. Once other people got their own phones, the hardware store reverted back to being, well, just a hardware store. A place where you get your screws and paint without all the mingling and live background music. Slowly but surely, the Mayflower elite dropped their Zahavi envy. Or, at least this is what Tova thinks, found other things to be petty about. Till today, a surprising number of Nestiona's inhabitants, including the current mayor Shmuel Boxer, are the descendants of those Mayflower families. But few, if any, know the story of Zahavi and his phone. It is, however, detailed on a plaque outside what used to be the hardware store. Today it's split between a law office and a bodega. Tova and her husband Doron took me there to see it. This was my grandpa's shop. Tova proudly told the teenage cashier, who couldn't seem to care less. I remember the little girl, it was much, much bigger. I was sitting next to the phone. My grandfather was sitting on his chair over there. In the corner, where the phone once stood, there's now a massive cooler full of XL energy drinks. Tova stared at it for a few seconds and then turned towards the door. You can imagine, in 1933, in the middle of the desert, a beautiful house like this. All this place you see upstairs belonged to him. It was still here. Now it's, uh, it's a store of what? Of a supermarket. Nothing. It's a cute story, really to have had the first phone in a town. But on a deeper level, at least for Tova, it's about more than that. It's part of my soul. The phone was a symbol of a foreigner coming from Poland, rejected by the Mayflowers of Nestiona, coming over them. That's all. That is the story. While the novelty of the first phone has long faded, Alongside the very memory of it, the feelings it brought out still linger to this day. Look, I am 73 years old now. 
but I am still holding his inferiority feeling deep in my heart and I'm not willing to to forgive. Today, when we all have phones in our pockets that can reach much farther than the next town over, there's something comforting, even humbling, about hearkening back to a time when words weren't cheap. Today, with all the smartphone and all modern times, nothing impressed me as much as knowing that my family had the first phone ever in Estiona. Theo Cantor. Becca Sykes read the passages from Geula Zahavi's book, It Was Like a Dream. Our staff includes Yochai Meital, Zev Levi, Adina Karpuch, Mitch Ginsburg, Jamal Rishek, Hadas Kidron, Shoshana Sara, and Rotem Tzin. Lev Cohen, Shira Shantz Khalil, Ross Bordeaux, and Yael Ben-Chorin are incredible production interns. Sela Weisblum is our sound engineer, and Adam Milliner mixed this episode. Zev Levi scored and sound designed it, with music from Blue Dot Sessions. The episode was recorded in our very own Nomi Studios. You can catch up on all our past episodes on our site, israelstory.org, or by searching for Israel Story wherever you get your podcasts. You can and should also check out our new home at timesofisrael.com slash podcasts. And of course, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. If you're interested in sponsoring episodes of Israel Story, email us at sponsor at israelstory.org. I'm Ishi Harman, and we'll be back next time with the first installment of a massive and still secret project we've been working on for many, many months. So till then, I hope this episode made you want to pick up the phone and call someone. Shalom, shalom, and yalla bye. Hello
אפריקה, קומון צבא בצרפתית, הלו הלו מדברים, זאת מילה בינלאומית, הלו, הלו הלו, הלו, how are you? time inspiration it's worth shopping Kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over $600 each week you can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time Kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply